Hey, it's David Meerman Scott here. I am so psyched to be a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast. I'm going to be talking about my book, Marketing Lessons from the Grateful Dead, which I co-wrote with Brian Halligan. He's the CEO of HubSpot. And also Bill Walton, the famous NBA Basketball Hall of Famer, wrote the foreword to that book. So check in with Douglas and listen to our conversation. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others, as one of the top marketing podcasts. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection in with a message that you're a listener, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. All right, let's get on with the show. Today I'm joined by a very special guest, David Merriman Scott, and we're going to talk about the book he co-authored with Brian Halligan, Marketing Lessons from the Grateful Dead, What Every Business Can Learn from the Most Iconic Band in History. David Merriman Scott is an internationally acclaimed marketing and sales strategist, author, and keynoter. Forbes magazine said that David is one of those select few people who saw and understood the social media phenomenon as it began. He's the co-author of 10 books. Three are international bestsellers. The New Rules of Marketing and PR is now in its fourth edition, has been translated into 26 languages, and is used as a textbook in hundreds of universities and business schools worldwide. It has over 300,000 copies sold. Dave has also authored Real-Time Marketing and PR, which is a Wall Street Journal bestseller, Newsjacking, and Worldwide Rave. And he also co-authored Marketing the Moon, which is now in pre-production as a feature-length film titled The Men Who Sold the Moon. David, congratulations on Marketing Lessons from the Grateful Dead, and welcome back to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thanks, Douglas. That was quite an introduction. (laughs) Um, It's always good to be here with you. Well, David... I should also mention that you are what's known as a deadhead, uh, and you first saw them perform in 1979 when you were in high school, and they just turned 50. They started in 1965. For the listener who is not familiar with the Grateful Dead, can you tell them who they are? Sure. Uh, Grateful Dead started in San Francisco, 1965, as you said, Um, and they're a really interesting combination of rock and roll and country and jazz and just really interesting influences. And um, so they kind of became pretty unique in the world of music. They did everything against what the music industry suggested. So, for example, they allowed fans to record their, their concerts. Another example is they, they ended up starting their own record label. That was very early on. They, rather than make the primary revenue from albums, they made their primary revenue from concerts. So they just did everything really different. But what was fascinating to Brian Halligan and I, Brian, by the way, is the CEO of HubSpot, and Brian and I wrote this book together. And interestingly, we both built our businesses sort of on these ideas. HubSpot now is crushing it with, as you know, you know HubSpot very well, Mm -hmm. crushing it with 
Um, not, they have 900 employees, well over $100 million in revenue, went public late last year on the New York Stock Exchange. And many of the ideas around social networking and social marketing are ideas that Brian and I first encountered way back in the sev- early, late 70s, early 80s that the Grateful Dead was doing and the way that they attracted their fans. So um, that's why we decided we wanted to write a book about them. And what was really cool is just this month that we're recording this, mm-hmm. the Grateful Dead did their final concerts that they will ever do as the core four members of the band who are still alive. Jerry Garcia, of course, died in 1995. And I was at all three of those final shows in Chicago. And it was a really interesting coming together of the tribe, the the network they built starting in 1965, still alive and well with all of us coming together for a weekend in Chicago. I saw on Twitter that you and your co-author Brian Halligan was there, as well as uh, Bill Walton, who wrote the foreword to your book. Bill Walton is the world's biggest deadhead in two ways number one he's seven feet tall so when he's at it when he's at a show bill walton of course nba basketball hall of famer um when he's at a show and i've been to a number of shows where he's been there you can't miss him the guy's head sticks out above everybody (laughs) else's it's really kind of humorous and he doesn't like hide somewhere he doesn't go on the side of the stage or you know somewhere in the dark he's in the middle of it he's in the thick of it and uh, the other reason he's the world's largest deadhead, he's, he's seen over 800 shows. He became a fan in 1967, and for 48 years, he's been a huge fan of the Grateful Dead. So, yeah, yeah Bill wrote the forward to our book. It's a great, wonderful forward. And so we connected up with him uh, two times uh, and spent time with him chatting, and he's really a great guy. So it's really interesting how, you know, bands build a fan base, and... Grateful Dead was manages to get people like me, like Brian Halligan, like Bill Walton, to come not just to one show or not just maybe to, you know, a couple of shows over our lifetimes, but to go again and again and again. And here's Bill, 800 shows. I'm about 50. I'm nowhere near 800. Brian's about 100. <laughs> but, you know, they're doing their final three shows in Chicago both Bill and Brian and me went to all three shows, you know, multiples, paying paying um, the, the steep admission fee multiple times. And what, what, you know, this, is, this is a obviously a marketing book podcast. The, what marketers can, can learn from this is that it's absolutely possible to build a following, to generate interest in your product or service using the sorts of techniques the Grateful Dead has used. And that's just the real fascinating aspect of all of this is that we can learn from the techniques that the Grateful Dead pioneered 50 years ago. Let's explain a bit more about how unusual and different their whole approach was at the time. For instance, back then, 60s, 70s, 80s, most of the artists wanted to make money off their albums, and the, the touring was just a necessary evil. And the idea of you know, creating an experience was, was just, they must have, people really must have thought they were crazy, particularly the uh, record executives. Exactly right. Exactly right. The, the, the model at the time was that you put out a record, that's how you made your money, and you toured around the album because you wanted to generate interest in each city so people would go buy more albums. Grateful Dead turned that completely around. 
decided that they were going to focus more on making money around the concerts. And they made a number of different things around that. So, for example, what most bands would do is they'd play the same set of songs every night or, or a very close similar similarity of their set list over every night. Very similar to the album that people would have heard. Often similar to the album, and often they had to focus on the most recent, the songs in the most recent album. And, you know, and many, many bands still do the same thing. The Grateful Dead, completely different. They would play all kinds of different songs. Some of them were their originals, but some of them were also covers of other people's songs. But when I saw them in Chicago a couple of weeks ago, it was three shows. They didn't repeat a song. Uh, you know, oh, not even over three days. Not even over three days. Wow. And this, and remember, this is pulling together the band they haven't played in over a number of years, and pulling them together so that they they didn't they did not play a song twice over the <laughs> three different shows. That's unheard of. You know, if you go to see the Rolling Stones, or you go to see the Who, or you go to see Pink Floyd, whatever band it is, they often will repeat songs. And uh, one of the reasons that that was so interesting was. Fans like me and many other of us would then say, wow, what are they going to do tomorrow night? Holy cow. Or they'd throw out a really weird cover. You know, they'd cover Johnny Cash or something like that. <laughs> and uh, what are they going to do next tomorrow night? I got to go back again. And yeah. so people, people were buying multiple tickets. There were quite a few people who the phrase, deadhead phrase is get on the bus. There's quite a few people who would follow the band from city to city for over the course of an entire tour and see 30 or 40 shows over the course of three or four months. And it became sort of a lifestyle for them. Mm -hmm. So another thing that drove that, which is a really important marketing point, is that the Grateful Dead allowed fans to record the shows. So if you were in the audience, you could bring a high-end tape device to record the concerts. And again, every the music industry said, you're nuts. Every other band said, no, you can't do that. Grateful Dead said, sure, why not? And you know, one of the things Jerry Garcia famously said is, we, we're going to play our music, and when we're done playing it with it, anybody who wants to can have it. So they did make a rule that you're not allowed to sell that music, but if you wanted to record it for your own use or to give away to a friend or to trade with other people, that was totally cool, and they encouraged it. Now, what that did is that got those music, in the early days, of course, it was cassette tapes, that got those tapes into the hands of people who like, wow, what's this? this is pretty interesting. I want to check it out. And that's how I learned of the Grateful Dead. That's how Brian Hurt learned of the Grateful Dead. Many people I've spoken with over the years tell me that, you know, they'd be in a college dorm and someone would be playing one of those tapes that somebody had recorded at one of the shows. They were playing one of those tapes in a college dorm or in a car, car stereo. And, and people would say, oh, that's a pretty interesting band. Who are they? And get into it. Maybe then get a couple tapes of their own. You get into that and then say, well, shoot, I need to go to a show. And so the Grateful Dead, over the course of their history, many of the years that they were active were either in the top 10 or sometimes even the number one touring act in the whole world, and certainly in the United States. They were making more money touring than any other band in many of the years that they were doing so. And so 
it was because of this social network that they built. And, you know, I like to say that they built a viable social network before Mark Zuckerberg was even born. And, <laughs> and, and it's really true. And many of the many of the techniques that the Grateful Dead used were and are the techniques that we're using today in social media, giving away content, allowing people to engage with you. I mean, lots of different things, you know, giving away one thing in order to get people interested in another thing. Those are all things that we do today in social networks online and things that were pioneered by the Grateful Dead in the way that they built fans for their music. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about how people, you know, record executives would say you guys are crazy to let people record your shows like that, it sounds real similar to people now saying, why should I be blogging and giving away what I think are my secret, my secret sauce? What, uh, well, I don't understand about just educating people. Can, can you explain the, the big parallel there? Well, that's exactly right. You've hit, you've hit on probably the most important point, and that is that there are a lot of people who are scared to give away their stuff. They're scared because, well, gosh, if I give away my best ideas in my blog and tell people how I do things and tell people how I do things and share my um, you know my, my secret formulas or whatever it might be then people aren't going to want to do business with me because they can get my stuff for free now that's cer certainly true that some people are just going to take and are not going to become your customer but those people probably wouldn't be your customer anyway if they couldn't get it free Mm -hmm. And so there's still lots and lots and lots of businesses who won't do that. I mean, lawyers won't give away free legal advice on their blog because they, they say people should come to me if they have a legal problem. Well, yeah, how are they going to know about you unless you educate them? They will you know? come. <laughs> they will. If, yeah, yeah. If, they, if they know, like, and trust you beforehand. I'll give you, I'll give you an example in my own world. Um, uh, last year, I... Uh, published a book called The New Worlds of Sales and Service. And I decided to do something pretty radical with that book. What I did was I made a slide share called The New Rules of Selling and put it out on SlideShare. And I gave away a huge amount of the content of the book. And in fact, it was a hundred and over 150 slides on SlideShare. And, and I was giving away the content of the book, basically. And my, my reasoning behind that, same thing as The Grateful Dead, is the more people exposed to my ideas, the more people who want, might say, well, gosh, this stuff seems pretty interesting. I, I want to learn more. I'm going to buy the book. Mm -hmm. Or this stuff seems pretty interesting. I want to know more about this guy. Maybe I should have him speak at my conference. And, um, in fact, the last time I checked... There were um, just about two hundred thousand people who would who had uh, viewed my slideshare, which is that's a lot of people. How else can you get two hundred thousand people to become interested in what you do other than giving stuff away? And so I think that you know you're not going to sell a book to every single person who takes a look at your slideshare, but gosh, if you sell. If you sell just 1% of the people who take a look at that slide share, in my case, um, you've just sold 2,000 books. And that's certainly worth the effort, but it's actually, in, in reality, many more than that who ended up then saying, well, gee, maybe I should check out this book. The other thing that happens, which is really interesting, also very Grateful Dead-like, is that people share it. 
there's thousands and thousands and thousands of people who shared links to that content through Twitter, through LinkedIn, through Facebook, through other social networks. So what that meant is I was reaching people who had never heard of me before. That's the same idea with The Grateful Dead is that you give away your music, people trade the tapes or they play the tapes in their dorm room or whatever it might be, and then you're exposing your ideas to people who had never heard of you before. So that's a really powerful tool because all of a sudden people who had never heard of my, my name, never heard of this guy, never heard of these books, um, are, is, is exposed to my ideas uh, all because I gave some ideas away. Mm-hmm. And there are lots and lots more examples in the book of some very specific things that the Grateful Dead did, like in digital marketing now, email marketing is very important, and one of the most important things there is to segment out your lists so that you know different groups can get the most relevant message. And they were doing that, evidently, where they would go to a city, and beforehand they were sending postcards <laughs> to people in that area saying, hey, <laughs> we're coming. Yeah, they were, they were really clever. They're, in the very early 1970s, they put out an album, and then on the back of the album it said, hey, are you interested in what we're doing? Send us your name and we'll keep you informed. And that was the first time that um, they pulled together mailing lists. And of course, in the early days, it was postal mailing addresses, and now it's email. Pulled together lists of people that they then proactively communicated with, and it was a really interesting approach to it. The other thing that that allowed them to do, and this is another thing that was completely radical at the time, completely counterintuitive, and also completely different than what everybody, every other band was doing, is they started their own ticketing office. And they actually worked out deals with the venues that they played that half or even more than half of the tickets that were sold for the event were actually sold through the Grateful Dead ticketing office so that fans who are on their mailing list would be alerted that, hey, we're going to be doing a show. This, these are the particular places we're going to be doing these shows. Send in your mail order requests. And then they were getting the seats directly from the band. That did a number of things. Number one, it, again, it built that social network. It built people who were pleased to be actually connected to the band in this way. Well, shoot, how'd you get your tickets? Well, I, I connected with the band, and the band sent them to me. That's pretty neat. But the other thing, it, it did a, a reasonable job at thwarting scalpers, people who buy tickets and then resell them, because you had to go through a pretty big rigmarole to actually get those tickets. You had to send in your name and postal mailing order, and you could only order up to four tickets and a whole bunch of rules, so that it didn't eliminate scalping, but it made it less of a problem because it was very difficult for scalpers to get tickets that they could then resell. Mm -hmm. So one other message that is really clear for marketers these days, well, it gets two more that come to mind before we wrap up, is the way that they just went straight to their audience. And you can do that now with your prospective customers, but even in the comedy world, you can see these comedians now are not having to go through so many of these middlemen or gatekeepers. They're just selling directly to their fans. Absolutely. And that's happening in many, many different areas, you know, whether it's publishing or people who act and comedians, as you said. And, and I, think, I think that 
middle people, middlemen, aggregators and whatnot are frequently being disintermediated and that getting out and building your own fan base is a really important aspect for, for many different businesses. I mean, you know, people always look at Apple as being a good example of, of a company and they do many things right, but gosh, they have their Apple store, right? Mm-hmm. They sell direct. You go in and you talk to an Apple employee and you talk to them about the products and you buy directly from the Apple store. And sure, there's other ways to buy Apple products, but you know they went direct. They built a fan base that then you can buy direct from. Mm-hmm. The other thing that is becoming increasingly important for marketers is understanding the overall experience that their customers have rather than just a transaction. It's it's much more about the experience from soup to nuts. Even if it's Amazon, the experience they engineer for you is a very good one. And that's what the Grateful Dead did, where it, for them, it was very much about the experience. And they poured a lot of money into making sure that they had a great experience, like with their sound system and all the, I guess, the R&D they did. Well, yeah, they were huge pioneers. They spent a fortune on sound systems. They had their own sound system at a time when most bands would just rent sound systems from city to city. They built their own. They, in many cases, had to invent new things. For example, they had a a weird kind of sound conditioning device that they actually had to work with NASA to develop, and it cost (laughs) them $200,000 in the 1970s, which is a huge amount of money for a band to spend. When I saw them a couple of weeks ago, it was... It was the best sound system I've ever heard in an outdoor venue. It was absolutely fantastic. I was actually a little worried because the shows were at Soldier Field in Chicago. It's a football stadium. Holds 70,000 people for a show. In fact, they, they, they broke the record for Soldier Field, most people for any event. Had um, you ever been to a show of theirs in such a big venue? I had not. I had been to um, more arena shows. I'd never been to an outdoor stadium show. Uh, in fact, I started I started seeing them early on, so I actually saw them play some theaters, which was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Now that you know, now that I've outgrew that sort of thing a long time ago. But anyway, I, I was worried that I wouldn't be able to hear very well. I was I wouldn't be very good. I'd be hearing people talking next to me and whatnot. But the sound system was phenomenal. They spent more money than they had to on sound. They contracted with a video producer to make custom videos and custom photographs that were displayed throughout the show. And this one is remarkable to me. They um, commissioned an artist, a musical artist, to create an original score of music that was played before the show, after the show, and during the set break. Uh, Grateful Dead famously plays two sets. They They play an hour and a half or so, take a a one-hour break and then come back and play another hour and a half. Um, I'm very unusual at the time for any band to do that. You know, most people would just come out, play their songs, and then leave. The Grateful Dead took a set break. So the the music that they contracted ended up being played in Chicago before, during uh, the set break, and then after the show. And they, again, money they didn't have to spend, but it was a huge experience, experiential bonus. And one, one more final thing that I just thought was remarkable. As everybody walked into the first show of the, of the final three shows on Friday night, every, all 70,000 of us were handed a red rose. And um, you know, the red roses feature prominently in Grateful Dead artwork over the years. And to spend the money required to give every single person who walked into the venue a rose 
uh, a red rose. I mean, how in the world they find that many red roses <laughs> to begin with? And I, I mean, think I heard, uh, I thought I saw in your blog that even some of the Chicago police had red roses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the red roses made themselves all, all around, all over the place. I, I mean, I could go on and on and on with the experience. The ushers and the security people all were, were wearing tie-dye, custom-made tie-dye shirts. I mean, mm. gosh, they didn't have to do that, but they did, and it made the experience that much better. Yeah, yeah. And you're involved with the Grateful Dead Archive at UC Santa Cruz still? Yeah, I am. I am. I'm on the, the, the uh, digital board of advisors of the Grateful Dead Archive at uh, University of California at um, Santa Cruz. And they actually ran a, a fantastic exhibit at the um, museum. It's located right across the street from Soldier Field, which was fantastic. So mm-hmm. I had a chance to see some of the archive material and i'd been to the archive before but hadn't been for a couple of years so it was nice to see that yeah. one of the things the grateful dead does is give back to the community so i figure i needed to give back we donated 25 percent of our royalties to the archive that's right that's right so david if readers took only one thing away from the book what would you hope it would be uh, give away all of your stuff because if you do people will become your fans and then they will want to buy something from you great and is it next year, 2016, we might get a fifth edition of the new rules of... Um, no, it's actually going to be October of this year, October 2015. Oh, my The goodness. fifth edition of the new rules of marketing and PR is scheduled uh. to be released. I've actually finished the manuscript, so it's on, on track to be uh, on t- uh, October of 2015. Oh, great. Well, the fourth edition topped out over 400 pages, so I can't wait to see what's, what's uh, in the I next act- one. I actually tried to trim it back a little bit, so <laughs> I don't know how what the page count's going to end up. Right. Trim, trim it back. Well, good. Well, how can listeners find out more about you and, and all your books? David Merriman Scott, just hit Google. You'll find a whole bunch of stuff. I am actually giving away in an entire book. It's called Worldwide Rave. You talked about it at the opening. So if you go to worldwiderave.com, the book is completely and totally free as a Kindle download, an iPad iTunes download um, as a PDF, a number of different formats, Nook, the Nook format. Uh, uh, so get a free book, decide what you think, and then um, take a look at some of my other stuff. Yeah. So the name of the book is Marketing Lessons from the Grateful Dead, What Every Business Can Learn from the Most Iconic Band in History. Our guest has been David Merriman Scott. David, you were the very first guest on this podcast, and I really appreciate you coming back and your support of the show. I'm honored to be invited back a second time, Douglas. Thanks very much. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who've left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the entrepreneur, author, and motivational speaker Jim Rohn, who said, Formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune.